atribulado pela ação de Satanás. Please stand by. We'll be streaming live soon. Hey, good to be here with you this morning as we continue our study in the book of Ephesians. And Pastor Rick, the past two mornings, if you've been watching, uh, has worked us through about half of chapter 4. Uh, just really challenged us to think about, uh, well, the, the offices of ministry yesterday and uh, then what it means to be a part of the body of Christ. And so we're in beginning a very famous uh, few verses here. In chapter 4, beginning verse 17, it talks about putting on the new self. And so we're going to try to get to the end of chapter 4 this morning. Uh, so we're going to begin here and look at, uh, I'm going to read verses 17 to 24 okay, of Ephesians chapter 4. So that's where we are. So take a second, find in your Bible Ephesians chapter 4, and then we'll begin verse 17 to 24. And I'll read that, have a few comments, and then we'll uh, then we'll uh, continue though to try to get to the rest of the chapter during our time today. So let's read Ephesians four, beginning verse seventeen. This is Paul talking. Remember this: I say therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. Man, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness and greediness, but you have not so learned in Christ. If indeed you have heard Him, and have been taught by Him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, that you put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Very famous verses out of the Bible, putting on the new self. Right, Be renewed in the spirit of your mind that you put on the new man, the new person that you have become in Christ. And so as we look, think about the sort of how Paul has been bringing us along in the book of Ephesians. He, you know, in the first three chapters, he really establishes our position as saved by grace. We are partakers of the divine love of God. The power of the Holy Spirit resides within us, which is the, the same power that raised Christ from the dead. And so he establishes that relationship with God because of what Christ did on the cross. And then, and then as we learned from Pastor Rick, he begins to establish the concept as the church is one body, right? And so God has this vision that, that the church would be sort of a all, all those who follow in Christ would be a one body that's being perfected. Okay, and so God has a plan for working that out. He establishes the offices of ministry. And then, you know, the offices of ministry are for the perfecting of the saints. And, and uh, so when there's a problem there with the offices of ministry, then 
then the working of God's plan for the perfection of the saints gets interrupted. Uh, see Pastor Rick's teaching yesterday morning for more of that. Okay, that. But I'm just sort of reviewing here. So then, so, so then we come here in verse 17, and Paul begins to narrow the scope from sort of the church as a whole idea with the offices of ministry and what God is doing there. And, and he narrows the scope to the individual level, saying the church is made up of many members, and each member has to begin to work out their own salvation. Each, each person has to daily be working to put on the, the new person that's in Christ, that's made in Christ. Because it's, it's all of us working that out together that makes us the body. You know, and it, it's, it's not a concept that's lost on us. I mean, most of us are familiar with team sports, right? Team sports, everybody has a position, and you have to play your position, and, and so you win as a team, but everybody has to progress individually in their position, right? And that, that's, that's soccer, basketball, football. That's very, that's, so that analogy is not lost on us. We understand that. Paul is not doing something that's, you know, totally weird here, right? And so Paul is saying if, if we as a church, as the body of Christ, are going to accomplish our goal to reach the lost and be the light of Jesus in a lost and broken and dark world, because see, there's still plenty of Gentiles that are lost in the futility of their minds. Plenty of people, Jews and Gentiles are like, who don't know Jesus, totally lost. And if we of the body of Christ can't figure out how to be the light of Christ because we're stumbling over each other and stumbling over ourselves, then we're in deep trouble. So Paul is saying, y'all got to get it together here. Oh. We're going to fail as a church. So we cannot be isolated Christians who only have what we call now in the Western world a personal relationship with Jesus but are totally void of a communal relationship with the body of Christ. Why? Because it takes the church as a whole to accomplish the purpose. Each of us doing our individual efforts, but not for our own self, you know, benefit, but so that we as a body of Christ can accomplish the goal. So yeah, let me say a little bit about individualized Christianity right now, which is a very... I don't know if it's only in the West or if this is... I, I think it really is. I think in the Southern Hemisphere, the idea of being a family of believers is, is, is a lot stronger, honestly. And our Western individualized culture has come up with this concept of the personal relationship with Jesus, which I'm fine with that. But you know what? That's begun to take over to the fact to now people say, I don't need to go to church to be a Christian. God can hear my prayers in my house or my apartment, so why should I go to church? I can just sit in my house and pray. I don't need anybody else. I already have a personal relationship with Jesus, so I don't need to go to church. I've already found God. It's over now, right? I found God. The Bible has no concept of that idea at all. It's not in the Bible. The Bible preaches a community of believers, even in the Old Testament. God called the people, the Jewish people out as a whole to say, you are supposed to be a holy nation. So, 
So this idea of just an individual Christianity is, is just destroying the church. Because people are just sitting in their homes thinking, oh, I'm good with God, I found Jesus, that's it. And these statements are not rooted in a biblical understanding of what it means to be a Christian. Because to be a Christian means that you're part of the body. You've got to be a part of the body. So as Christians, we are part of the body of Christ globally, right? Which is really overwhelming these days to think of. You know, uh, before the Internet and, and all this, when you think globally, you, you just kind of have this, you know, maybe just sort of a imagery in your mind. But, but with the Internet and everything, uh, you know, the global idea is, is a lot stronger now. When you think about global Christianity, it feels very overwhelming. Over 7 billion people in the world. And the millions and millions of Christians out there, that's the church. That's the body of Christ. It's all over the world. And it's held together by Jesus. Man, what a job that is. Who wants to be the CEO of the church, of a universal church? Only Jesus could do it, right? Minister by the Holy Spirit, right? And so we are expected to plug into that somewhere. So then you come onto the local level, you find a church. And you'll be a part of a body of Christ. And so we're expected to support each other through prayer, through meeting each other's physical needs, through exhorting each other, correcting each other, singing together, worshiping the Lord, reminding each other, bearing each other's burdens. And in this way, fulfill the law of Christ, as Paul says in the book of Galatians. And so, our individual efforts to put on the new self that Paul is talking about here are not solely for the purpose that I could say I'm a good Christian, right? Because Paul is about to start listing some specifics. And we're going to get into those. He's going to talk about, you know, he lists some of the commandments, actually. Don't steal, don't lie. And he says things about, you know, don't be, uh, don't sin in your anger. And so he's going to start listing some specifics. But see, when we, when we begin to look at the specifics that Paul is going to talk about, if we're not careful, we begin to think, well, if I can accomplish these things on an individual level, I'm good with God and God won't be mad at me and I'm a good Christian. And that's our understanding of becoming perfected in Christ. But now... Now, if you don't get this idea, then you'll totally miss what Paul is trying to say here. He's established the fact that we're a body. So we don't, we don't work on our own salvation and work on our own behavior and develop as a person just so that I can feel good about myself and convince myself that God's not mad at me because I'm, I'm starting to learn how to sin less. I mean, that, that actually is a very self-centered view of Christianity. It's all about you. Paul says, no, we, we actually work on these things because we have to pull our weight in the body. We, other people are depending on us so that we can be the light of Christ to others. And so it really becomes others-focused. It becomes about becoming more like Christ, not so that you can feel good about yourself, but you can serve better in the body. Now, we're really getting somewhere. Because if, if, if that begins to form the purpose for which we are striving to become more like Christ, 
then we can really do something because it's not about us anymore. And I don't say to myself, oh, you know, I, I messed it up today. God's mad at me and I'm going to go hang my head and feel bad about myself in my room until the emotions kind of work themselves out and I think God's probably done being mad at me and so then I can pick myself up and, and start again. So, so let's look at then some of the specifics because Paul hits on this on every point. So let's look at verse 25. Here's the first one. Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor. So he's referring to one of the Ten Commandments, right? But what's the purpose for which Paul is telling us to be truthful in our speech? For we are members of one another. It's got nothing to do with be truthful in your speech. In other words, don't bear false witness, right? Don't lie. It's not that you refrain from lying so that you can say that you're not a liar and then somehow say that you're be becoming more like Christ because you're lying less. No. He says, you're truthful in your speech because other people are depending on you to be truthful in your speech. Because when we're not truthful in our speech, the trust degrades the relationship and we are ineffective as the body of Christ because we don't trust each other anymore. That's actually... So Paul is raising the bar here to say, it's really not about you. It's about being a part of the body of Christ. And when you're a part of a body that's working to share the gospel with Jesus, of Jesus to the world, then you as a whole have to be able to depend on each other. You can't depend on each other if you're always afraid that somebody's lying to you. So we as a group have to agree that we have to be truthful. Or else, because if, if we're not, let's look at some of the uh, Proverbs. I already mentioned that it's one of the Ten Commandments, do not bear false witness. Proverbs 12, 22. The Lord detests lying lips, but He delights in people who are trustworthy. Proverbs 25.1 Telling lies about others is as harmful as hitting them with an axe, wounding them with a sword, or shooting them with a sharp arrow. I mean, if you're going to tell me a lie, you might as well just punch me in the face. Honestly. Then Peter 3.10 says, Whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. Because see, at the heart of lying is manipulation and control of others. Let me say it again. At the heart of lying is manipulation and control of others. Okay? Presents false information, trying to manipulate others so that you can uh, twist the situation to your personal benefit or what you would want the outcome to be, to be. And so it's really not others focused, it's you, you focused. That's what Paul is getting at. Okay, we have to depend on each other. And so it's the idea that, that you got to be in control, you're afraid of what might happen if you're out of control and if, if the truth comes out, then, oh, you know, I'm not going to be in control of the situation anymore and I, and I won't be able to control the outcome anymore. And so I am vulnerable now to what other... Well, yeah, you are now. But the truth will set you free. 
See, as Christians, we have to see it better. We are not darkened in our understanding and think that we are in control of anything. Lord have mercy. It's a lie that the devil tells us that if we can manipulate a situation, then we can somehow create a better opportunity. We're not in control of anything. And actually, it's a lie because what happens is once it's found out that you told a lie or that you're manipulating, then people don't trust you anymore. And so it degrades the ability to be effective in the kingdom as a body of Christ. We put on the new self that says, reminds us the truth sets us free. Okay? So, as I already said, manipula- uh, bearing false witness, lying, or falsehood in your speech destroys trust, ruins relational intimacy, it fragments communication, it isolates individuals, ultimately it destroys the body of Christ. So it's others focused. Okay? It's not just so you can sit around and say, I don't lie. I'm a good Christian. That's not what it's about. Anger. Be, be angry and do not sin. Okay? Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Okay? So now, Paul, first one is words out of your mouth, bearing false witness. The second specific Paul points out here is anger. Okay? So he goes to an emotion. He says, okay, be angry, but don't sin. In your anger, right? Well, let's just look at some other verses first to get some context about um, how does, what are some other things the Bible says about anger in general, and then we'll kind of take a look at it. James 1, 19-20, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Proverbs 29.11, Fools give full vent to their rage, but the, but the wise bring calm in the end. Ecclesiastes 7.9, Do not be quickly provoked in your spirit, for anger resides in the lap of fools. In Psalm 7.11, God is a righteous judge and God, a God who displays His wrath every day. Okay, I wanted to give that one as a context to say, you know, God does get angry. It's in the Bible everywhere. Okay. Only God knows when it's right to be angry, what it's okay to be angry about. Because, see, James says we as humans oftentimes get anger wrong. Okay. Because anger is emotion. Emotions, emotions, human emotions are just not a good guide for making life decisions. Okay. Let me just say that again. Whether it's, you know, anger or whatever it is. Human emotions are just not a good guide for making life decisions. Emotions are unpredictable. They can come and go without rhyme or reason. Um, you know, so don't feel condemned if you have a flash of anger or you get worked up in a situation. That's just life. Okay? That's normal. That's not what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying, you, you know, we have to have a level of emotional maturity as Christians that we're working towards it. And we have to have an awareness that my human anger oftentimes is not going to produce the righteousness, as James says. It's not going to produce the results that I somehow would think it would. Okay? So, what does it mean to develop that emotional maturity? Well, you know, strong emotions can create thoughts we wouldn't necessarily have or wouldn't come to pass or would drive us to do things that we, w- we actually really don't want to do it. 
in our heart of hearts. You know, but the uh, strong emotions rise up in you. And so it takes, it takes a level of maturity to not let that overtake you. Okay? And so you, there's a process of self-awareness that has to take place in the life of a believer to say, God, I don't know what it is that comes over me. It just makes me, just seems to take over. And, and But God, you've got to help me because if, if I don't get better at this, I won't be effective in the body. It's not about, God, I got mad and I sinned, so you're mad at me. I'm going to go feel bad. That's all about you. No. it's If we're all a bunch of, you know, immature, emotionally erratic Christians, then we'll never get anything done for the Lord. That's really what Paul is saying here. It's all about how can we play our part in the body. To understand the difference between human anger, as James calls it, and godly anger. Many times in the Bible, God's anger is directed towards injustice. And so we have to read the Word. Say, okay, God, what, what really does make you angry? Oh, it's not that somebody offended you. It's that somebody took advantage of the poor. Somebody took advantage of the widow. Somebody took advantage of the orphan. Somebody is being dishonest in their business dealings. That's the kind of stuff that makes you angry most of the time. Notice that Paul reminds us that harboring anger lets the devil in. That's why Paul said, don't let the sun go down on your anger. I think that could be figurative, but I think there's a literal element to that too. That if, if something that made you angry early in the day is still, is still just raging by the end of the day, I think Paul is challenging us to say there, there's a... There's some emotional development that needs to take place there that hasn't yet. So there's, a, there's some self-awareness, some humility that needs to come in and say, Lord, my whole day was ruined because of my emotions. And if I can't, be, if I, if I can't work this out, I won't be effective, God. You've got to help me. Verse 28. No stealing. You've got to work. <laughs> That's a good American verse right there, right? You know, just, what is it? Do you, do, pull up your bootstraps, right? In other words, lace up your boots a little harder and just, you know, buckle down and work hard. You know, but the working is, is really not about proving your individual ability to accomplish things at all. Okay? So, let's read it here. Verse 28, Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor. But then, Paul says, gives the purpose for it. Working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. That totally revolutionizes the idea of why you're working. Let's look at some other... I like to bring these Scripture verses in from the Bible that sort of give context about uh, these uh, themes here. Proverbs 12, 11. Those who work their land will have abundant food, but those who chase fantasies have no sense. <laughs> that just puts it pretty plain right there. Proverbs 13.4, Sluggard's appetite is never filled, but the desires of the diligent are fully satisfied. And then Proverbs 6.10 and 11, A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest 
and poverty will come on you like a thief and scarcity like an armed man. (laughs) But carries the idea that everyone plays a role in the body of Christ and everyone is expected to assume their role and apply themselves to honesty and working hard. See, stealing assumes that everyone else should work and that you get to be the exception. In other words, for somebody to have something that's worth you to steal, they had to work. So they worked, you didn't, you get to be the exception. Everybody else can work. Now, look, this is not, come on, don't, don't, don't be critical here. People who have handicaps and, I mean, everybody could do something. I'm not saying that, you know, we apply some, you know, we're not a corporation here where we're applying this bar and everybody has to reach it. And if you can't reach it because you have a disability or something, then you're not worth as much in the kingdom. Don't do that to me. Come on. We're not a corporation. We're the body of Christ. And remember, Pastor Rick taught us that the least in the body is oftentimes the most important one. What the world would say is the least, at least, right? If Jesus can take a fisherman, Peter, and uh, use him to preach the first revival in, in the book of Acts, Start the church. God, you know, come on. Don't limit God. Don't limit people. And don't look at people on the outside and, and say that they're limited somehow. No, no, don't do that to people. Anyway, that was a little sidetrack. But, um, so you can't just be the exception and say, well, everybody else has to work. And, I, you know, so the new self assumes that if I work hard and make a little money, I will have something to bless others. Not that other people work and then I get to take from them. No, I want to be the one who's putting in my share so that then I can help others who are in need. It's a totally different perspective. I want to be the blessing. I want to be part of the church that is blessing the poor and meeting the needs of others. But I can't do that if I'm the one that assumes that I don't have to, I don't have to work hard and I'll just sort of mooch off everybody else. So I only got a few minutes here, so let's go wholesome speech. Verse 29, you see the theme. Paul is constantly saying all these moral things that we look at, it's not about you just being a good Christian. It's about you being able to be effective in the body of Christ. That's the purpose for working these things out. Wholesome speech, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. There it is. I mean, it's just over and over. Paul is saying we... We are wholesome in our speech towards others, not so that at the end of the day we could say, hey, I think I did pretty good with my speech today. I, think I, I don't think I said one mean thing today. I don't think I misspoke once. God's happy with me. Come on. It's so that people are blessed, so that people are edified. People, Proverbs twelve eighteen. there is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts. In other words, our words can hurt others, but the tongue of the wise brings healing, or they can heal. Proverbs 18.21 Death and life are in the power of the tongue and those who love it will eat its fruits. The classic adage applies here. We will reap what we sow with our tongue. If we sow unwholesome talk, gossip, slander, fault finding, we will reap relationships full of fault finding, full of bitterness, full of unwholesomeness. If we sow wholesome talk, exhorting others in the Lord, finding good in others instead of finding fault, 
we will reap relationships that are wholesome, life-giving, full of good findings. So Paul reminds us that our words have an effect on the body of Christ. We cannot assume that our words don't really mean anything. The Bible says otherwise. We cannot assume it's just words. No. The Bible says you'll reap what you sow and your words do mean something. Not, And it, it's not about us. It's about others. How can I use my words to build others up? Not, how can I make sure I don't sin with my words today? See the difference in thought Paul is saying here? It's about others. How can I build somebody up today? The new self challenges us to support the body of Christ with how we speak. Well, I'm wrapping up today. Um, and, you know, Paul sort of, at the, the, the last few verses here, he sort of summarizes it, saying, all of these things do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit in somehow thinking that uh, you can't be a part of the body and that uh, you could just disconnect. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Paul is pleading with us to realize that it's much larger than just us not sinning. It's not about you, it's not about me, it's about all of us. It's about all of us working together and supporting each other to be the light of Christ in a lost world. I hope that you got something out of this teaching this morning. Let me say a prayer and then we'll let you go. We'll see you tomorrow morning. Lord, I ask that you would bless my friends, everyone watching this teaching, that as the Word was presented, God, that it would produce fruits, Fruits of repentance, God, that, that you would gently remind anybody that needs to sort of reevaluate their understanding of, of who they are and how they are approaching their Christian walk, Lord, that you would gently just, just come with your Holy Spirit and just lift them up right now, that they not be condemned one bit by a single word spoken, but realize that God's vision for their life is much greater than they ever thought it was. And that they would be able to see how they are part of a global body of Christ, and that you would convict them about where it is that they need to start being a part of the body. In Jesus' name. See you tomorrow. Have a great day. Hey!